The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show. Welcome to a new week. Glad to have you all along. We've got a very exciting program for you tonight. Of course, November 22nd, which would have been yesterday, was the 57th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. In 1963. Well, our guest tonight, Fred Litwin, has looked into this. He's written about it. And we'll let you tell you, we'll let him tell you his conclusions about the topic. They kind of differ from what a lot of people say. But tonight we'll be talking specifically about his new book about Jim Garrison. And if you're not sure who Jim Garrison is, he was the New Orleans district attorney who brought charges against people, Clay Shaw and others, in the case of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And actually, Jim Garrison wrote a book about those events and his work called On the Trail of the Assassins. And that book served as the foundation of the movie that many of you have probably seen by Oliver Stone, JFK. That story in JFK was basically the story of Jim Garrison, the New Orleans district attorney, and his investigation and prosecutions as it related to the John F. Kennedy uh, assassination. So uh, Fred Litwin has written a new book about this particular topic. It was called, the book is called On the Trail of Delusion, Jim Garrison, the Great Accuser. If the title gives you any indication of Fred's position on this, um, you'll know that he's got some um, some disagreements with Mr. Garrison. So we'll, we'll, we'll find out exactly what Fred has to say and what he's written about when we bring him in. Okay, let's do this. Go to break. We'll be right back. It's Beyond Reality, and uh, we'll be talking about GFK tonight. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Anyway, tonight we're going to be talking about the JFK assassination. It was 57 years ago yesterday that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Three years into the, his uh, presidency, he was preparing for a run for re-election, and his life was cut very, very short. It is one of those days in history where if you were alive and you were aware, you can remember the moment you heard the news, where you were, and what you were doing. Uh, And many uh, folks alive today remember exactly that. We have a returning guest on the topic tonight. Fred Litwin has been here before. He had written a book called I uh, I Was a Teenage JFK Conspiracy Freak. We had him on talking about that. He's got a new book called On the Trail of Delusion, Jim Garrison, the Great Accuser. And in fact, it's Fred's third book. Fred, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you back. Always love having you on and love this conversation. I find this so interesting. Well, thanks for having me. It's, it's always great fun to talk about this. Let's talk a little bit about why this still uh, remains so far in the front of American consciousness. This, this event, 57 years ago, we're talking several generations ago, is still something that is a mainstream conversation. There's still movies, there's still TV shows, there are you know investigative specials. Uh, 
produced about this particular topic all of the time. Um, it truly is a force unto itself. Why does it remain so? Well, the JFK assassination is like the Rosetta Stone of conspiracies. It is the uber conspiracy. It, it allows anybody to see what they want to see. So if you want to be able to explain American foreign policy, well, the JFK assassination explains uh, the Vietnam War or the military-industrial complex or the CIA. So whatever your political stripe, right or left, you could use the JFK assassination as a vehicle for your political views and to explain your thoughts on current-day politics. And, you know, we've seen a lot of art. I will call things like JFK, Oliver Stone's JFK art um, and and television produced about this topic. Uh, does America just love a good mystery, too? Is that part of it? Well, it, it's, it, it is, it's the ultimate mystery. It's, and people, of course, people love murder mysteries. Uh, and this is the ultimate one. And then you tie it into politics and tribalism. You know, it's, it's always nice to be part of a tribe that believes in a particular conspiracy or a particular set of facts. You're on the know. You know things. And so that's kind of fun as well. Was this from what you know, and, and I'm trying to think back in history as well, but was this the first... Uh, event in a major event in history whereby the American public started to, to think that its government was lying to them? It, it, it's one of the first ones. I mean, this was, this was and, and it coincided with the Vietnam War. Right. So you had this, this major controversy about the assassination at the exact same time people were questioning the government on the Vietnam War, and the two of them fed into each other, and it really created a, a, an incredible credibility gap um, uh, and a generation gap in the 1960s that still reverberates today. Let me ask a question about JFK. Uh, obviously, um, his his presidency can't um, escape the fact that it ended so tragically. Uh, was his presidency remarkable? Otherwise, I mean, I, I you know I hear mixed reviews on John F. Kennedy, but. Was it was it the was it the way it ended that made it's it's such a, an important presidency maybe in, in the American psyche? Well, you know, one thing in the American psyche is that he was killed. He was very very young, and so in our minds, he is always this sort of young president who is really good looking and charismatic, and that image uh, will stay with us for eternity. Um, look, we don't know um, that much about what kind of president he would have been because it was cut short. Right. What we do know, it was a time of optimism. It was a time of hope. I mean, look at the way we felt back in those early 60s compared to the way we feel today. Yeah. Yeah, do you think if, and I don't mean necessarily the current president, but do you think if any president was assassinated, we'd have as many people crying openly in the streets about it? Probably not, although I think that, uh, you know, Reagan came close, and that right. would have also been a very uh, traumatic affair um, as well. But, you know, nothing, nothing will come close to what Kennedy was in our hearts and minds. And, and I think the other thing that makes it very, very tragic is the fact a little insignificant man brought him down. And it makes it hard to accept that as the explanation. Yeah, that is that's a good point, a very important point, actually. As we continue this discussion, um, remind me too when when after the JFK after JFK was assassinated, Lee Harvey Oswald was quickly brought into custody. 
he was then himself assassinated. So we, we never really got to hear from him other than that initial uh, press conference. Um, but wasn't it when the Zapruder film was finally released to the public that the real questions started to arise? Well, there, no, there there were real questions in the 1960s. I mean, Mark Lane was running around the country in 1966 and 67 talking about the uh, the Kennedy assassination very successfully. Um, and so that was a firestorm across the country. He, he barnstormed across college campuses, uh, oh, wow. stirring up uh, a lot of stuff. And then you had Jim Garrison coming in in 1967 right. and actually making arrests. That's right. That's right. That makes a lot of sense. But the Zapruder film really turned the whole thing into um, a far more uh, tangible discussion, I would think. Well, the Zapruder film was shown for the first time nationwide in 75 on the Geraldo Rivera show. And that was another firestorm, and that caused the creation of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, the second investigation into the Kennedy assassination. We have heard a lot about uh, declassified documents in the last, you know, few years, maybe five or six years, even things like KGB files. Have, has any of this information that's been released recently declassified changed the discussion in any significant way? Well, I've got un- sad news for a lot of your listeners. The, the truth is that uh, while there are still documents that need to be released, um, they aren't really assassination-related documents. So when the Assassinations Record Review Board looked at declassifying documents back in the 90s, they took in a very expansive look at documents. And so, I'll give you an example. They, they went to FBI agents, and they said, if you worked on the Kennedy assassination, then all of your files, all of your other files, are considered an assassination record, uh-huh. even though they may not have nothing to do with the assassination. And so what's being held back are files that have informants, or some sort of foreign intelligence method that can't be disclosed right now. But all the assassination-related documents have been released. So it's sort of the non-assassination records that still have some stuff that hasn't been released. I'll tell you where there is interesting files that we still need to get at, and that's in Moscow and Minsk. When Lee Harvey Oswald stayed oh, yeah. so defected to the Soviet Union, um, those two cities still have secret files. Right. Right. Um, Your story is an interesting one, Fred. I don't think you can help, anybody can help, but be curious about this particular moment in history. But you obviously took it a step further, and you researched it and ended up writing about it. Talk a little bit about your genesis of uh, from being a casual uh, curiosity seeker to an author. Also, talk about how you started to look at these conspiracy theories and started to recognize or decide that that they needed to be debunked. Well, I was a conspiracy theorist at 18 when I saw the Zapruder film. I was convinced. I immediately ran to the library. I got Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment out, um, and I, I was like, wow, this is there's some, what's going on here. But I want to understand what was going on and why um, the Zapruder film didn't seem to convince the Warren Commission that there was a conspiracy. And uh, so I had, like, years to catch up on everything that had happened from 1966 to 75. And I ended up, you know, writing doctors who had looked at the autopsy x-rays and photo photographs. And um, I was convinced there was a conspiracy. And, and I sort of uh, 
I dropped it because I had to go to school and I had to get a job and, and uh, sort of left it alone until the early 90s when I was living in uh, the United Kingdom. I was living in Oxford. And all of a sudden it came bubbling up when I got um, a CD-ROM of, of the evidence of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And I started going through the evidence, and, and they had done every scientific test known to man, ballistics, firearms, fingerprints, um, authentication of the autopsy, x-rays, you name it. And every single test they did supported the lone gunman. And that's when I had to realize and come to grips with the fact that there really wasn't a conspiracy. That evidence pointed to only a lone gunman, but didn't the committee come back with a different determination? They did. So they, they, they well, first they, they did say that Lee Harvey Oswald fired three shots and killed JFK. Um, they said there was a second gunman, but they based that on the acoustics evidence. And this was a supposedly a stuck microphone, a micro, microphone on one of the uh, motorcyclists in the um, motorcade. Um, but after they finished their investigation, the National Academy of Sciences debunked that evidence and said there was no evidence of any other shots on that Dick the Belt recording. So there really is no evidence of a second gunman. So originally they had said, come to the conclusion that there was a second gunman based on the police officer's radio microphone being stuck on and using that acoustic evidence, but you're saying that a further investigation was done and it was determined that's not what was on that recording. Yeah, the, 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 the National Academy of Sciences found that there was clear evidence um, that the recording was around a minute and a half after the assassination, and so there could not have been any shots on that Dick DeBelt tape. Did they ever determine what they did here on that? Well, it's kind of funny because um, if you remember back then, Gallery Magazine, which is like a competitor to Playboy or Penthouse, mm-hmm. they actually came out with one of those plastic recordings. Remember they used to get plastic recordings in magazines oh, that sure, you could put yeah. on your turntable? Mm-hmm, yeah. And so they issued a recording of the Dictabelt. And there was a rock drummer, I think in Ohio, his name was Steve Barber. And he put it on, and he's, I guess he's got good ears, and he heard um, Sheriff Decker talking into the microphone, and he sort of transcribed what he heard and realized, checked the transcripts, and said, oh, this, he's talking, this occurred minutes later. And he actually contacted the National Academy of Sciences, and they said, wow, you're right, you're hearing stuff that nobody else can hear. Really? A drummer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a rock drummer. You know, it's funny. I, I'm, I'm a musician, and I play in bands, and r- drummers are usually the most uh, d- hard-of-hearing people because they play the drums, and they they're damage their ears for playing so loud. So that's really curious. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, he, he probably used headsets all his life. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. but it's, it's kind of funny. He's quite, he's kind of famous today for his discovery. So, all right, so we're going to get into the film JFK quite a bit because that... Uh, movie Oliver Stone film was based on Jim Garrison's book but before we do that tell me about the first time you saw the film JFK and what were your thoughts about it well I saw the film JFK right after it came out um, and I I was floored in two ways I mean first it's an incredible act of filmmaking I mean there's just some great actors and actresses and it is absolutely amazing and the recreation of the motorcade, it's, it's, it's a stunning, stunning film in many, many ways. 
And my second reaction, I was horrified because he used Jim Garrison as this vehicle to tell the story. And in real life, Jim Garrison was a really awful man. Uh, And this is where we're going to... um probably have to uh, re-educate some folks because I I think most people's exposure to Jim Garrison of any kind was through that film. After I saw that film, I read the book, uh, Jim Garrison's book on the trail of the assassins. So the title of your new book on the trail of delusion, Jim Garrison, the great accuser, obviously you've got some disagreements with new Orleans (laughs) district attorney, Jim Garrison. Where do we start this discussion? Well, I think we start with the fact that Jim Garrison was elected uh, district attorney in the early 60s in New Orleans, and he was a very intelligent man. He was like six foot six, booming voice. He could think on his feet. He had a great sense of humor. He was fantastic for TV interviews, came across great on television, and uh, he was good at entertaining people. And so I think the, the people of New Orleans took to him. But as soon as he was in power as dis- district attorney, he started using his power against any political opponent in the city. So he attacked the judges, he attacked the police, he attacked the, the, uh, the parole board, he attacked even the, the uh, legislature um, in Baton Rouge. He attacked everybody, and they soon discovered that he had a knack for headlines and that it was hard for them to fight back because he was smart and funny, got the headlines, and people started to be a little scared of him. So he really expanded his political power once he got into office. So, you know, it's one thing for a district attorney to come in and try to shake up the government. Maybe there's corruption in the government. They try to root some of that out. They try to make a change for the better. Was he trying to make a change for the better in that regard? Or was he just somebody who, once he got elected, uh, maybe it was an ego problem. Maybe it was, um, you know, he was a little bit full of himself. What was happening with him? Well, it was, it was a lot of things. He, he, did, he, did try, he actually had a huge campaign on vice. So uh, he basically teamed up with the police, and they actually came up with a statement of all of their targets, including homosexuals, prostitutes, uh, and they went after sort of what they called bee drinking. It's where you go into a bar, there might be dancers, you uh, have, a, have a few drinks, they don't bring you your change, you get slightly drunk, and by the end of the evening you have no money left. And so he closed down some bars, and he went after some of that. Um, it was largely for show and largely for headlines, and it got him a lot of that. Uh, but it really didn't last, um, and then everything sort of went back to normal. Uh, but it showed people, I mean, people enjoyed the fact that he seemed to be going after Vice. The problem for Garrison was that by the time the fall of 1966 came around, he was somewhat bored. He had no political opponents left. He had gone after everybody, um, and he started reading JFK assassination literature. He read Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment, and he realized that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald lived in the city of New Orleans for five months prior to the assassination. And so he thought, you know what? There's a couple of leads here in New Orleans. I'll go back and reinvestigate. And so he opened the investigation, and that was the start of him going down the rabbit hole. I I don't want to get to the end of our conversation before we actually have it, but I have to ask you, as we start to learn more about Garrison and his case and his his investigation, was he looking at this as a way to profit, or was he truly uh, of the mind that he might be able to bring some closure or some answers to this case? 
Well, he, he, he was very ambitious, so he really, had, I think he hoped to be governor or senator from Louisiana, so he had very, very high political ambitions. Um, so that was, the, I think, his key motivation. Okay. Uh, as he started to investigate, there were two leads in New Orleans that he investigated, and, and at one point, uh, one of his chief suspects died of natural causes, David Ferry, and his staff tried to convince him to stop the investigation. They said, look, if you stop the investigation now, you'll look like a hero. Your chief suspect is dead. You go on to other things. You've made your point. And he said, no, I'm going to solve the greatest crime in the history of the, of the country. And he was convinced. I think he convinced himself that he could do it. How many years after the assassination did this start to take place? Was this, you said 66, or was it three years later? Yeah, so November 66 was the start of his, of his investigation. And that's when he started to look into the two leads that he had already looked into in 1963. So these were leads from 63 that he had looked into that really didn't go anywhere. And he decided, well, let's relook at those leads and that was the start, the fall of 66. I want to um, go back to something you said just a moment ago about uh, Jim Garrison's effort to, to uh, wage a war on vice and, and, and some of his other uh, targeted uh, enforcement efforts. You mentioned homosexuals, because that's a part of this conversation here. I, I think yep. a lot of people listening might not recognize that that would be something law enforcement would actually do something about. But in, 19, you know, in the 1960s, early 1960s, it was in some cases. Yeah, in very, very many cities. I mean, that was back when uh, police forces used to raid gay bars and arrest people. Um, I'm from Montreal. It happened until the mid-'70s when they were still raiding gay bars and arresting people. Uh, Very, very quite sad. Um, You'll see in my book, I I talk about a raid in 1962, a Mardi Gras raid at a party in Jefferson, Paris, where they arrested 96 gay people. Um, sort of very, very sad for and nothing. The, and the crime was being gay. That was the crime. That was right. Yeah, just the crime was being gay. Wow. It's un, it's un, it's unbelievable to think that. I mean, we've come a long way in 57 years, uh, but even to even think that was possible at any point is, is quite remarkable. I, I have a headline from the mid-60s in New Orleans where they shut down a bar because they had employed a known homosexual. Wow. Well, we've come a long way. Um, so as you as you start to tell the story of Jim Garrison, um, he he's investigated. You mentioned David Ferry. I find David Ferry yep. to be an, an amazingly interesting person and character. Um, you know, I, I, I blur the lines blur for me a little bit between Garrison's book and the movie JFK. So I'm not exactly sure how much of what I'm remembering is fictitious or not. But tell us right. who David Ferry was. Well, David Ferry was a pilot for Eastern Airlines and uh, in, the, in the early 60s, and he, he lost his job because of uh, advances he made on under, underage boys. He was, he was a homosexual. And so he lost his job, and he was a fairly intelligent person. He was also involved in um, the Civil Air Patrol. This was sort of a quasi-military group, uh, like for, for teenagers, kids, to learn about uh, the military and drills and flying, etc. And he was an instructor in that. He was also very active in the anti-Castro movement um, back in 1961. In 1963, 
he was working uh, the day of the weekend of the day of the assassination. He was working for the lawyer uh, for Carlos Marcello, who was a mobster. And David Ferry was in court that day, and he, he had just won a big court case. And so, in the evening of the assassination, Friday night, David Ferry and two of his teenage friends um, went driving from New Orleans to Houston, and they went ice skating on that weekend. Uh, they went to Houston, they went to Galveston, they went ice skating, um, and then they came back. And uh, while David Ferry was away, um, there was a drunken uh, felon, ex-felon in New Orleans, who had called the police and said, well, this guy David Ferry might know Lee Harvey Oswald because of the Civil Air Patrol. And I had seen some rifles in his apartment, and so you really need to investigate and so the police were waiting for him to come back. They wanted to question him. There is a lot made about David Ferry and his um, connections to possibly the CIA and his uh, connections to the anti-Castro movement. How much of that is fact? Well, the real fact is he was connected with the anti-Castro movement, but only in 1961, uh, once he lost his job with Eastern Airlines, he was really, uh, he spent the rest of 62 and 63 trying to get his job back. He was very much involved with um, a whole variety of efforts with Eastern Airlines. And so he dropped out of the anti-Castro movement to focus on that. Uh, the, 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 the picture of David Ferry from the movie and from Garrison's book mm-hmm. is very different from the real David Ferry. In real life, he was the kind of guy, if you had a flat tire at a restaurant, mm-hmm. he'd be the first one out of the restaurant to help you with your flat tire. He was actually a very nice person, a very good person, um, who did a lot of good. Um, and it, it, he's not the villain that people think he is. Now, his death, according to the Garrison book and the film JFK, was of a mysterious circumstance. Is there any truth to that? Uh, not at all. You know, in fact, uh, prior to uh, his death, uh, Ferry was complaining of headaches. He had headaches. He thought he had encephalitis. He was very weak. Um, he thought he was deathly ill. He didn't know what was wrong. The fact is that he had a, a berry aneurysm, and he had had a, an earlier bleed, sort of a, an artery blew up in his head. He had an early bleed, and then it really blew out, and he died of natural causes, and there's actually no um, room for any doubt on this. It was natural causes, um, and that's it. There's really no mystery. Now, Garrison tried to create a mystery. Uh, he wanted a mystery, but um, the coroner was quite specific um, that it was natural causes. I remember in the film, um, this, and, and, and Oliver Stone did a great job of, of insinuating things while the, the story being told was something a little bit different, but then he'd show you clips of something going on that wasn't being told in the story to make you, uh, you know, assume that there was some kind of nefarious activity going on. I remember uh, something about David Ferry being held down on his couch and pills being forced into his mouth or something. Yeah, that was a, a nice little fantasy. It's just really uh, not true. And, and uh, you know, there were rumors that, um, you know, there was bruising on his lips mm-hmm. um, that showed that something was forced down his throat. But the fact is um, there was no bruising on his lips. I should tell you, I actually spoke to um, Alba Buff, who is still alive. He's 74. He went with David Ferry to Houston that weekend. Oh, really? 
Uh, yep, he's still alive. He was like 21 at the time I spoke to him. And uh, the reason they went to Houston was to go ice skating. Alba Buff was a really terrific roller skater. Remember, roller skating was really big back then. That's right. And he had never ice skated, and so there was no, there were no ice skating rinks in New Orleans, and so they drove to Houston uh, to go ice skating, and that's what they did. And uh, he was with David Ferry, and you know Jim Garrison makes the story that oh my God, they they drove through nine hours of of a thunderstorm. How could they do that? And when I spoke to um, to Al, he said, you know, if you ever flew on in an airplane with David Ferry, he would fly right into a thunderstorm. He was fearless. <laughs> And so the fact that you drive through some rain was nothing. Not a big deal. When you spoke nope. with him, did was he involved in the uh, in the eventual prosecution that Jim Carrison uh, took to court? Um, he was, and and this is what really gets interesting. Was uh, you know he he really knew David Ferry, and um, Garrison's men wanted him to tell them more about David Ferry and the so-called plot, and they tried to bribe him. And his lawyer was smart enough to tape it. He got a tape recording of Garrison's men offering him money and a job if he would fill in some of the details about the conspiracy. Really? And so that recording um, became public, and uh, Garrison's men visited Alba Buff. They put a gun in his mouth, and they said, you've got to retract um, your accusation that you were bribed. Really? And the next day, he went down to Garrison's office, and he signed a statement that he was not bribed, even though, the, even though there were tapes. And um, there was a police investigation. They got the tape. They listened to it, and they decided that there was nothing wrong uh, because you could pay an informant. They thought this was nothing more than paying an informant for information. But he was clear to me today that it was definitely was a bribe. Another uh, character that's referenced in Jim Garrison's book and in the movie JFK is Guy Bannister. Who's Guy? Yep. Who was Guy Bannister? Guy Bannister was a former FBI agent um, who basically uh, opened up a private investigative office uh, in New Orleans. So he was working private uh, cases. He was very, very extreme right wing. Um, anti-Castro, uh, anti-desegregation. Uh, anti, uh, uh, he was a bit of a bigot. Um, and so he was sort of a local gumshoe um, that sort of was very, very active in the anti-Castro community. And how did he get wrapped up into this JFK investigation? Well, <laughs> you know, he died, in 19, he died in 1964 before the Warren Commission finished its work. Um, he got wrapped up in because he... Um, Jack Martin, who was the informant who told the police about David Ferry, used to do some investigative work for Guy Bannister. And if you remember the scene in the movie JFK where uh, Guy Bannister pistol whips yes. uh, Jack Martin. And in the movie, he pistol whips Jack Martin because Martin says, oh, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was hanging around here. What was going on? Uh, the reality is when you read the police report, um, he pistol-whipped Jack Martin for making uh, unauthorized phone calls from his office. I find it so bizarre that so many of the details of 
reality versus what was reported by Garrison, whether it was in the book or ultimately in his in his um, his the case he brought to court. Um, it, it almost seems like it, it, it's based on fabrications more more so than not. Yeah, so when Garrison was investigating these two leads, the David Ferry lead, and there was also another lead with a lawyer by the name of Dean Andrews, who claimed on the weekend of the assassination that a Mr. Clay Bertrand mm-hmm. called him to um, represent Lee Harvey Oswald, be his attorney. So uh, Garrison investigated that lead, and that uh, Dean Andrews could not identify who this Clay Bertrand was. And to make a long story short, Garrison believed that Clay Bertrand was really this man, Clay Shaw. And why? Only because uh, Clay Bertrand was gay and spoke Spanish, and Clay Shaw was gay and spoke Spanish. (laughs) And Garrison had this unique belief that gay people, when they use a pseudonym, keep the same first name. So they both had the same first name of Clay. You know, I can't help but when when you mention these names to think of the actors that played those parts in in JFK and of course John Candy I think was um was the the attorney just yeah 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 and Tommy Lee Jones was Clay Shaw um and we're going to get a lot and get much more into Clay Shaw because Clay was uh, was actually um taken to court or was was arrested in this particular investigation by Jim Garrison. Um, so he is a central figure in all of this. But as this investigation is is unfolding, is the public aware of what Garrison's doing? Is he releasing information as he goes, or is it all kept until the end? Well, it's, it's all kept until a couple of reporters figured out that he was spending money on sending investigators to Dallas and other cities, and they sort of like wondered, why are people going to Dallas? And it sort of leaked out and all of a sudden hit the press in February that he was investigating the JFK assassination. And once it got into the press, David Ferry, who was still alive, called up the press and said, yes, I'm part of the investigation. They're looking at me uh, as a central character. And reporters started to go see David Ferry to get the, real tr- the truth from him. And he basically said, this is all crazy. I mean, this man is out of his mind. He thinks that I'm involved. I, you know, I've known nothing. Um, and then David Ferry died, and uh, and then that set the motion for Garrison to move and arrest Clay Shaw. I mean, the whole thing was just ridiculous. Was uh, was um, David Ferry an actual acquaintance of Lee Harvey Oswald as it's portrayed? Uh, definitely not. Although Lee Harvey Oswald was in the Civil Air Patrol. He went to like two or three meetings, and and David Ferry was an instructor, and there's a picture of the two of them together. Uh, Oswald was 15 years old. It was 1955. And when David Ferry was questioned in 1963 about Oswald, he said, look, I I don't deny that maybe Oswald was in the Civil Air Patrol with me. I just don't remember him. And so he never denied it. He just didn't remember Oswald. And then his friends who were in the Civil Air Patrol, told them, yes, yes, Oswald was in there. You may not remember. Fred, the uh, first book that you wrote about this particular topic, I was a teenage JFK conspiracy freak. You um, yep. you were on the program, what, was it 2018 when we talked about that? Yep, yeah, two years ago. Wow, time flies. Yep. And that was, that was your, um, basically you telling the story of how you came to the determination that there was no conspiracy here when it comes to the JFK assassination. In fact, Lee Harvey Oswald was 
the lone gunman was the assassin, and that's uh, kind of case closed. I, I think so. Yep, I really told the story of, of uh, exactly how I changed my thinking on the assassination. Was there any um, pivotal moment for you? I mean, you, you mentioned the uh, House Select Committee's evidence that you got a, a copy on CD-ROM, went through it. Was there any one piece or one thing that, that made you change the way you viewed this whole conspiracy idea? Well, it was looking at um, the exhibits when I looked at the trajectory diagrams mm-hmm. that were done for the House Select Committee on Assassinations by NASA. And it was like looking at the first time real trajectory diagrams um, that were done correctly. And I was floored just how they showed the, 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 match, the single bullet worked perfectly, perfectly in alignment with Kennedy and Connolly and the motorcade and the sixth floor window, but in both the vertical and horizontal planes. It completely lined up, and I had never seen uh, a diagram like that, and that really shook me. Yeah, well, let's talk about that magic bullet for a second, because most conspiracy theorists would say that this bullet could not have traveled the path that they say it traveled. And if you've watched the film JFK, one of the things that Garrison goes through in the court case, in the trial, is he shows this you know convoluted route that this bullet takes, taking right-hand turns and left-hand turns and coming out pristine on a stretcher. Uh, they want you to believe it's not possible. What's the truth? The truth is that it's incredibly possible. In fact, it's it's a very good theory. Um, the two men were completely lined up. If you look at the 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 car, the the automobile they were in, Connolly was seated lower. He was in a jump seat, so it was lower than the seat Kennedy was in. So he was lower, and so a, a bullet exiting from Kennedy's neck would therefore go on a downward trajectory and hit Connolly in in the back of his shoulder. Uh, or below the right armpit. It really made perfect sense. Uh, Connolly's seat was also inboard to the left. So when you take it, um, when you actually draw this correctly, the two men line up perfectly for the single bullet. There's other evidence that is pointed to, uh, at by conspiracy theorists that are like, you know, pivotal pieces of information. Um, obviously, There are other explanations for almost all of it. Uh, Can we go through some of those things? You must have a bit of a list of uh, some of these things that are pointed to often by those who say that the uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's lone gunman um, conclusion was erroneous. Oh, yeah. I can go through anything you want. Do you want me to start? Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to... Some of the the, uh, pieces that really stand out to you as being, you know, just uh, ridiculous or just disproven. Well, the, the, what people really talk about is that he was a poor shot. In fact, Lee Harvey Oswald was a sharpshooter in the U.S. Marines. He was a very good shot. And in my book, I actually posted um, uh, one of his uh, rounds where he was firing at a target uh, much farther away than uh, firing at Kennedy. And this was without using a telescopic sight. Um, he was very, very, very accurate. So he was a good shot, one of the not thing, a poor shot. Yeah, and one of the things I always say about that when that argument comes up, you know, they say, oh, but he would have had to fire this many shots in this many seconds. It would have been very, very difficult. And I, I always think to myself, well, if he, if he had missed, we wouldn't be talking about it the same way. But he hit. I mean, he just hit. He, You know, whether it's luck or, or skill, he hit. 
he he did it, and also he had a much longer time frame than people think. We know when the when the first when when the first bullet that hit Kennedy, and when the headshot happened. But if the first shot, which I think did miss, and then you had two shots after it, you probably had eight to ten seconds for Oswald to fire three shots, which was quite easily done. Yeah, that's a considerable amount of time. It doesn't sound like a lot of time, but in, in that circumstance, it it is. A lot of time. Um, what are some of the other things that the conspiracy uh, folks would point to that we can talk well, about? Well, they would point to the the, the fact the bullet, the, the magic, the magic bullet was pristine. Um, but what they don't tell you is that when the bullet exited Kennedy's neck, it started to tumble, and so when it hit <clears throat> Connolly in the back, it was on its side. So you had an oblong wound in Connolly's back, and as it struck Connolly's rib. It's, it further, um, it actually exited almost going backwards, entered the wrist going backwards. And so the deformity of the bullet, it was flattened because it was going sideways. Mm. And lead was excreted from the base of the bullet. And that's why you have all these lead fragments that were found, or a few lead fragments that were found. And so it's all completely consistent with the way bullets work. Some people talk about the autopsy and the fact that uh, that it was not conducted in in a manner that uh, a legitimate autopsy would have been conducted. And there are actually things like JFK's brain that were were removed and never examined. Any truth to any of that? The brain was removed and examined. It just, it ended up disappearing. And I think that basically uh, Robert Kennedy uh, took the brain and buried it with with, uh, Kennedy when he was reinterred in 1966, I believe. Um, I think the Kennedy family was very, very worried about um, the brain being an object of curiosity and wanted it to be gotten rid of. Um, the autopsy could have been better, um, but we do have the autopsy x-rays and photographs, and every forensic pathologist who has examined them comes away with saying there were only uh, all the shots came from behind. And so we, we've, well, the evidence we do have is pretty conclusive. As we get back to the Jim Garrison story, so he is investigating folks like Guy Bannister's relationship, um, David Ferry. Ultimately, the finger he points the finger, I suppose, at uh, Clay Shaw. Tell us about Clay Shaw. Who was the real Clay Shaw? The real Clay Shaw was a World War II hero. Uh, he was working on uh, supplies for the Normandy invasion for General, uh, for General Thrasher. And uh, he actually won medals from three different countries for his work in World War II. Uh, he ended up going, uh, he became a businessman after the war, and he was involved in international trade, uh, moved to New Orleans, and he started the International Trade Mart and actually built this big building. Uh, in New Orleans, dedicated to international trade. Um, so he was very successful. Uh, he was very well known in New Orleans. Um, but in his private life, he was a playwright. And he also liked to buy properties in New Orleans and, and restore them. And many of the properties that he restored, particularly in the French Quarter, uh, were featured in the magazines uh, in New Orleans. So he was a patron of the arts. He was very well liked in New Orleans, very well known. And out of the blue, Garrison charges him with conspiracy <laughs> to kill Kennedy. 
So Garrison, as you said, connects Clay Shaw to this particular case because of a phone call to an attorney by a gentleman by the name of Clay Bertrand. And uh, you said that this Clay Bertrand spoke Spanish and was a homosexual. Therefore, uh, Garrison looks at Clay Shaw and says, well, he's, he's a, he speaks Spanish, he's a homosexual, must be the same guy. Yeah, it must be Clay Bertrand. That was his, his initial thought. Okay, that he's Clay Bertrand, but Garrison went one step further, and this was the real beauty of what Garrison did, was he took that Clay Bertrand string, and he took the David Ferry string, um, and he fused them together uh, when he found this witness, Perry Russo, who, under hypnosis, and after being injected with sodium pentothal, a truth serum, testified that Clay Shaw was at a party with David Ferry where they talked about the assassination of Kennedy. And so he fused these two different leads into one story through this um, witness with recovered memory. And that witness... It was a complete... He, he, he was a, that witness, was, was he a convicted criminal himself? No, he was a, he was a, a young guy. He was like 25 years okay. old. Um, he he had been a friend uh, of David Ferry's, and he came forward uh, to talk about what he knew about David Ferry. And uh, but he was very convincible. And Garrison had um, you know injected him with sodium pentothal, and they've sort of implanted a recovered memory um, about this party, and they used that to. Uh, as the only evidence against Clay Shaw <laughs> so, at his trial. I mean, that doesn't seem to make much of a case. What, first of all, what did Garrison accuse Clay Shaw of, other than just the greater cl- crime of conspiracy to, to assassinate the president? But more specifically, and did he have any other evidence that could support that claim? He had no other evidence uh, to support that claim, and he didn't need uh, you know, he he only had to prove uh, an overt act, which could have been almost anything. And so he, he literally, I mean, he went to court with almost nothing. Um, and in fact, Perry Russo, who was that main witness, uh, was shocked because Garrison kept on telling him that he had other information, other evidence, um, but he didn't. And so he went in with basically um, Clay Shaw talking at a party. And, of course, even that was flimsy, because not only was it a recovered memory, but under cross-examination, Perry Russo said, oh, it was just a a bull talk. It was a bull session. Um, There was no talk of conspiracy. Did you look at the, or read the, or are they even available, the uh, trial trial transcripts from this prosecution of Clay Shaw? Yep, the the trial transcripts are available for um, most witnesses. There's a few witnesses that are missing, um, but you could read their accounts in the New Orleans newspapers. Um, It's quite astounding just how little evidence uh, Garrison had. He really wanted to use the trial to put the Warren Commission on trial. So he, a large part of Clay Shaw's trial was about the Warren report. Um, And that was what Garrison was really interested in, was trying to use this as a vehicle to attack the Warren Commission. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Does the transcript uh, read anything like the case that was presented in JFK, for example, in which Garrison goes after the Warren Commission? Well, that's true. He did go after the Warren Commission. He showed the Zapruder film like around 10 times in court. Um, so he he sort of took you know a couple of weeks off to basically just go after the 
the Warren Report. And, of course, for Clay Shaw's attorneys, they were sort of bewildered because, you know, it's not really their job to support the Warren Report. That's not really their purview. Um, they didn't really want to be put in that situation. They just wanted to really talk about Clay Shaw. And so it was hard for them, and the jury was sort of confused. What are you trying to show us? If I remember correctly, Jim Garrison was reelected as district attorney, and then he, he was he elected to the state uh, assembly or something like that, a state legislature. Uh, no, he ultimately he was elected as a, an appeals court judge. Okay, that's what it was. So he lost uh, in 1972. He lost to Harry Connick Sr. Uh, he lost the DA's job to Harry Connick Sr., who I visited in New Orleans. And uh, and then he ran to be a judge. He lost, and then he ultimately got elected to be an appeals court judge. So one of the things that we see in, in the uh, story in JFK is that uh, not all of Jim Garrison's prosecuting attorneys uh, were pleased or were on board with this effort, and there's some infighting. Was Did that really happen? And have any of them come forward after the fact to uh, indict uh, Jim Garrison on what he was doing? Some of, yeah, some, some have come forward. I mean, not, not, uh, not the main ones. I mean, the main ones, I think, are too embarrassed to come forward, but it, they really didn't want to talk about it. But, but several of the other attorneys, Charles Ward, other people have come forward and said this is a complete fraud. There was nothing to it. Yeah. Um, and you could read some of the memos um, written by Aaron Cohn, who headed up the Metropolitan Crime Commission, uh, who talked to other attorneys um, and wrote down their... their uh, um, their objections. And, of course, uh, there was a reunion um, in the early 90s where they talked to people who were still alive, and there were several attorneys who went public with, this was just a horrible idea. Let's talk about the book. Now, you've got a, a case that's flimsy. You've got an investigation that's flimsy and wrought with inconsistencies, yet Garrison's able to write a book about this on the Trail of the Assassins. How was he able to publish this book? It was interesting, nonetheless, even if it's a fabricated tale, but without a whole lot of criticism, it seems. Well, you know, before he wrote the book, Garrison, there was the House Select Committee on Assassinations, Mm -hmm. and Garrison wrote a lot of memos to the House Select Committee on Assassinations about his leads. And I can tell you, I have all of those memos, and I talk about it in my book. None of his leads panned out. None of them went anywhere. Um, and so he decided then to write this book. And it was turned down by 15, 16 publishers. Nobody wanted to touch it. Finally, Prentice Hall said, we'll do it. And they gave him a $10,000 advance, and they hired Sylvia Marr, who was a very famous Warren Commission critic, to be the referee. And she wrote a 26-page critique of his book, which I have. And uh, she was scathing on the New Orleans stuff. She really thought it was all ridiculous. But she wanted the book published because Garrison was arguing that Oswald was innocent, and that was her sort of pet peeve. In the end, the publisher rejected the book because uh, he thought that... um, uh, the sections on the CIA were so weak that um, nobody would believe them. But he eventually found a small left-wing publisher, Sheridan Square Press, who um, wanted to put it out, but they made him rewrite it as a first-person narrative. 
as opposed to a sort of standard third-person book. And um, that did the trick. Did you read the book prior to coming to the conclusion that there was no conspiracy? Um, no. I, 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 I was sort of lucky because when I started researching the assassination in 75, one of the first books I read, along with Mark Lane, was American Grotesque by James Kirkwood, uh, which is an amazing book. Kirkwood was a playwright who attended the trial, and he wrote a great account of the Clay Shaw trial. And I read that back in 75, and I thought, I was, I was convinced, I was inoculated uh, for anything Garrison would say after that. You know, it's interesting. When I, after I read the book, um, my initial thoughts were, yeah, okay, well, maybe there's something to what David Ferry was doing. Maybe there was something to what Clay Shaw was doing. Maybe there was something to this Guy Bannister stuff. But none of it seems connected to each other. And on a bigger scale, none of it seems connected to the JFK assassination. That's kind of how I was left when I, when I read it for the first time. And that's the way it is. So nothing, nothing connects to the JFK assassination. So it, it's it's a complete scam. I mean, Garrison was just completely um, out in left field in all of this. So Oliver Stone, uh, obviously familiar with the book, he seems to believe there's a conspiracy uh, that has been unresolved or unsolved. He makes uh, a, really a monumental film uh, with with the film JFK. Was he doing it just to make a good film, or do you think he had a, a bigger purpose in his effort? He had a much bigger purpose. He really wanted to talk about Vietnam. Vietnam was a really important um, uh, event for Oliver Stone. He served in Vietnam. He really wanted to explain uh, the war in Vietnam, and so the JFK assassination was his vehicle to explain why the United States got into the war. And that was his real interest, and that's why you see so much of the film is devoted uh, not so much to Clay Shaw, but to Mr. X, that mysterious person who sits down with Kevin Costner, who plays Jim Garrison, and explains the way the world works and why the military-industrial complex had to get rid of Kennedy so they could have their war. That was uh, Oliver Stone's uh, key interest. Yeah, and there is a lot of talk among the conspiracy discussions that uh, that uh, Kennedy's opposition to Vietnam or escalating that war, our involvement there, was the reason that he was assassinated. So I, uh, that connection is a little more clear now that you've pointed it out. Well, and then the, the fact is that, that, that after Kennedy was killed, there was no change in American policy until 1965. Right. Um, in, in fact, right after Kennedy was killed, um, there was a National Security Action Memorandum that came out, um, uh, Lyndon Johnson came out with, which was really identical um, to what Kennedy had already put out. Did the KGB People are a bit misleading? On yeah, this. yeah. Did the KGB have any involvement or any? Were they? I mean, I would have to say no. If 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 Lee Harvey Oswald was was a lone gunman, but I don't know. Was the KGB involved in any way? Well, here they they were invo- Here's where they were involved. The KGB was was involved in 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 running operations that helped convince the American people that the CIA was behind the assassination. Oh. So they ran several operations, and this is detailed in both of my books, um, to, 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 to really blame the CIA. It's incre- and in fact, that's why I, I want to look at more documents from Moscow, 
because there may be other KGB plots that we don't know about um, that were used to influence people. So that sounds like a really early uh, Russian interference kind of thing going on there. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and in fact, um, three days after Clay Shaw was arrested, there was a series of articles in, the, in a communist-controlled newspaper in Rome, Paese Sera, which basically said Clay Shaw was on the board of a Rome company involved. That was actually a CIA front. And this story traveled throughout the communist press and then ultimately came to North America uh, through my hometown, Montreal, where Le Devoir, a nationalist French newspaper, published it. And so it made the move from the communist newspapers into a mainstream newspaper, uh, and it's still talked about today, and that was most assuredly a KGB operation. So Shaw was not involved in the CIA then? That was misinformation? Complete misinformation. He was involved in this Rome organization, but it was just a World Trade Center um, and in fact, I went through the papers here in Ottawa of a man called Louis Bloomfield, who was supposed to be part of this uh, CIA front, but in fact, he was just a Montreal lawyer representing shareholders, and I have all of his correspondence, um, and there's nothing nefarious about this organization at all. Okay, so I've got to ask you about another character in all of this, and I probably should have asked earlier about this particular gentleman, Jack Ruby. He shoots Lee, yep. Harvey Os- uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, then spends you know time in prison talking about how he's going to actually tell the truth. He's going to come out. He's going to tell everybody what really happened. And he indicated there was a conspiracy. What was his angle? Well, uh, this is very interesting. Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald. It was an impulsive act. He just happened to be there. He happened to have a, he had a gun. Uh, there was an opportunity. He shot Oswald. And like any impulsive act... You know, you yourself, if you go into a store and you buy a CD, you may not know why you bought it. But after the fact, you try and, and, and understand, why did I do that? Yeah. And the same thing with Jack Ruby. He shoots Oswald, and then, why did you do it? And then he came up with different explanations. First it was, I wanted to show the Jews had balls. Then he said, I wanted to keep Jackie Kennedy from coming for a trial. But it was an impulsive act. It actually backfired. The whole thing backfired on Jack Ruby, and it's a very interesting story. I don't know if you remember, but on the Friday of the assassination, there was a full-page ad in the Dallas newspaper criticizing President Kennedy. Yes. And it was signed by Bernard Weissman. Well, Bernard Weissman is a Jewish name, and Jack Ruby saw that ad. And that made him think, oh, my God, what's going on? Why would this Jewish person do this? And then Kennedy was killed. And so he thought, my God, were Jewish people involved in the assassination? And he spent that Saturday actually going to the post office box of Bernard Weissman to see if he could find out who this guy was. Hmm. Then he kills Oswald. And you remember the the John Birch Society at the time was a very, very powerful right-wing organization. Right. And so they said, oh, Jack Ruby was Jewish. His real name was Jacob Rubenstein. So they started talking about maybe Jews were involved in the assassination, and Jack Ruby heard that. And that made him think, like, oh my God, because of what I've done, people are going to think that I was involved and the Jews were involved and we're going to be blamed. And he went completely mental Mm. after that. And the reason he wanted to go to Washington 
to sort of tell the truth. He wanted to go see Lyndon Johnson to tell Lyndon Johnson there was going to be a second Holocaust. <laughs> I, you know, uh, the truth is stranger than fiction, and when you look at all the characters involved in this, I don't know if just something this monumental attracts this type of character or creates this type of character. I'm not sure which it is, but it's certainly, you couldn't have written a more um, bizarre set of circumstances surrounding a major historical event. It's exactly true, and that that's what makes it so easy to, to concoct conspiracy theories. It's bizarre to start with, so, hey, it's really easy. I'll add a touch of this and a touch yeah. of that, and all of a sudden I've got a great conspiracy. It's really true. So with your book, On the Trail of Delusion, Jim Garrison, The Great Accuser, d- does somebody have to have a great deal of knowledge of the details of the assassination or the details of the conspiracy theories to, to read this and, and enjoy it? Uh, not at all. In fact, uh, you'll find uh, in this book there's actually very little about the assassination. It's really about uh, Jim Garrison who he was, uh, how his investigation started, and where it went. And there's a lot of primary documents in my book. There's a lot of uh, headlines from newspapers, memos. Um, I really take you through step-by-step what he did, all the way through to Oliver Stone's film uh, and beyond. So you don't have to have any special knowledge. And in fact, um, there's not that much in there about the assassination itself. Where can people find the book? It's on Amazon and any other online retailer, and uh, my website is on thetrailofdelusion.com, and I've got a great blog full of primary documents and other information. And the question that every author dislikes when they've just released a book, I'm going to ask it anyway, is what's next on the table for you? Do you have anything else, your eye on any other part of this story, this historical event that you want to write about? Yes, so my next book will be the end of the trilogy uh, on the JFK assassination. My next book is going to go back. It's going to be a social history of conspiracy thinking. and I'm going to start with Mark Lane and all the other early conspiracy theorists and go right up to the present time um, and use a lot of primary documents and show the whole social history of conspiracy thinking. Fred, are you 100% convinced of your conclusions here that this was a job by a lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald? Oh, yes, absolutely. It's, it, uh, the evidence is just so overwhelming that it was Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, one of the things I always go back to as well, based on some of these theories where there are so many people involved, that you know, someone somewhere somehow would have come forward on a deathbed or elsewhere and spilled some of the beans here that would have made this unravel if so many people were involved. And that just hasn't happened. Well, it, it, and, and the funny part is it actually sort of has happened. We, we, are, we are actually inundated with people who, who have uh, confessed to the assassination. Yeah, but they're There's not credible, are they? Are they the credible? They're none, I'm none, sorry? Of these, none of these folks are credible, are they? No, no, they're not credible. Yeah. But, oh, my God, we are, you know, it's almost like every year, too, we have got somebody <laughs> new coming forward with, like, oh, it was me. Yeah. I was on the grassy knoll. Right. I was the one shooting. Well, it's it's a great story. I appreciate your work, too. It's good to have a good, sober conversation about this as well. Um, you know, I love talking about the conspiracy angles, too, because I find it interesting to see how people sometimes fabricate evidence, but in many cases interpret evidence one way uh, versus another. So I enjoy both sides of the conversation, but it's really good to have a good grounded uh, discussion about this as we uh, look at this 57 years in the rearview mirror. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating topic, and uh, my next book is going to be a lot of fun as well. Well, again, thanks, Fred, for being here. I appreciate your time and appreciate your work. Look forward to having you back when the next book comes out. We'll have a good time with that one as well. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.